Section 2 of Uther and Egrein. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uther and Egrein by Warwick Deeping. Book 1, Chapter 2. Day came with an essential stealth. The great tree stood without a rustling leaf, in a stupor of silence. A vast hush held as though the wold knelt at orisons. Soon ripple on ripple of light surged from the hymning east, and the night was not. The sleep of the women from Avangel had proved but brief and fitful, couched as they had been under so strange a roof. They were all awake under the cedar. Egrain, standing under its green ledges, listened to their monotonous talk as they rehearsed their plight dismally under the shade. The nun Claudia's voice was still raised weakly in pious fashion. She had learned to ape saintliness all her life, and it was mere habit with her. The celeris's red face was in no measure placid. Hunger had dissipated her patience like an ague, and she found comfort in grumbling. The younger women were less voluble, as age and custom behoved them to be. Unnaturally bred, they were like images of wax, capable only of receiving the impress of the minds about them. Such a woman as Malt owed her individuality solely to the superlative cravings of the flesh. About them rose the slopes of a valley, set tier on tier with trees, nebulous, silent in the now hurrying light. Grassland, moist and spangled, lay dew-heavy in the lap of the valley, with the track curling drearily into a further tunnel of green. Igrine, scanning the trees and the stretch of grassland, found on a sudden something to hold her gaze. On the southern side of the valley, the walls of a building showed, vaguely through the trees. It was so well screened that a transient glance would have passed over the line of foliage without discovering the white glimmer of stone. She pointed it out to her companions, who were quickly up from under the cedar at the thought of the meal and the material comforts such a forced habitation might provide. They were soon deep in the tall grass, their habits wet to the knee with dew, as they held across the valley for the manor amid the trees. The place gathered distinctness as they approached. Two horns of woodland jutted out, enclosing and holding it jealously from the track through the valley. There were outhouses packed away under the trees. A garden held it on the north. The building itself was modeled somewhat after the fashion of a Roman villa, with a porch, whitely pillared, leading from a terrace fringed with flowers. The silence of the place impressed itself upon Igrine and the women as they drew near from the meadowlands. The manor seemed lifeless as the woods that circled it. There were no cattle, no servants to be seen, not even a hound to bay warning on the threshold. Passing over a small stone bridge, they went up an avenue of cypresses that led primly to the garden and the terrace. They halted at the steps leading to the portico, the garden broken in places, and somewhat unkempt, 
glistened with color in the early sun. Terrace and portico were void and silent. The whole manor seemed utterly asleep. The women halted by the stairway and looked dubiously into one another's faces. There was something sinister about the place. A prophetic hush that seemed to stand with finger on lip and bid the curious forbear. After their march over the meadows, and considering the hungry plight they were in, it seemed more than unreasonable to turn away without a word. Nonetheless, they all hesitated, beckoning each to her fellow to set foot first into this house of silence. Igrine, seeing their indecision, took the initiative as usual and began to climb the steps that led to the portico. Claudia and the rest followed her in a body. Within the portico, the carved doors were wide. The sun streamed down through a latticed roof into a peristylum where flowers grew and a pool shone silverly. There were statues at the angles. One had been thrown down and lay half buried in a mass of flowers. The place looked wholly deserted, though, by the orderly mood of court and garden. It could not have been long since human hands had tended it. The women gathered together about the little font in the center of the peristylum and debated together in low tones. They were still but half at ease with the place and quite ready to suspect some sudden development. The house had a scent of tragedy about it that was far from comforting. Said Malt, I should judge, sisters, that the folk have fled and that we are to be sustained by the hand of grace. Come and search. Claudia demurred a moment. Is it lawful, quoth she, to possess oneself of food and raiment in a strange and empty house? Nonsense, said the cellarist with a sniff. But, Malt, I never stole a crust in my life. Better learn the craft, then. King David stole the shoebread. It was given him of the priests. Tut, sister, then are we wiser than David. We can thieve with our own hands. I say this house is God-sent for our need. May I stifle if I err. Malt is right, said Egrain, laughing. Let us deprive the barbarians of a pie or a crucifix. Aye, chimed Malt. Want makes thieving honest. Jubilate Deo, I'm for the pantry. A colonnade enclosed the peristylum on every quarter. Beneath the shadows cast by the architrave and roof showed the portals of various chambers. Igrain led the way. The first room that they essayed appeared to have been a sleeping apartment, for there were beds in it, the bedding lying disordered and fallen upon the floor as though there had been a struggle or a sudden wild flight. It was a woman's chamber, judging by its mirror of steel and the articles that were scattered on floor and table. The next room proved to be a species of parlor or living room. A meal had been spread upon the table, and left untouched. Platter and drinking cups were there, a dish of cakes, a joint on a great charger, bread, olives, fruit, and wine. 
armor hung on the walls with mirrors of steel and paintings upon panels of wood. The women made themselves speedily welcome after the trials of the night. Each was enticed by some special object, and character leaked out queerly in the choosing. Malt ran for a beaker of wine. The cakes were pilfered by the younger folk. Claudia, whispering of sex and desecration, possessed herself with an abeyance of a little silver cross that hung upon the wall. Igrain took down a bow, a quiver of arrows, and a sheathed hunting knife. She slung the quiver over her shoulder and strapped the knife to her girdle. The clear kiss of morning had sharpened the hunger of a night, and the meal spread in that woodland manner proved very comforting to the fugitives from Avangel. Satisfied, they passed out to explore the rooms as yet unvisited. A fine curiosity led them, for they were like children who probed the dark places of a ruin. The eastern chambers gave no greater revealings than did those upon the west. The kitchen quarters were empty and soundless, though there was a joint upon the spit that hung over the ashes of a spent fire. It seemed more than likely that the inmates had fled in fear of the barbarians, leaving the house in the early hours of some previous dawn. As yet, they had not visited a room whose door opened upon the southern quarter of the peristyle. Judging by its portal, it promised to be a greater chamber than any of the preceding, probably the banqueting or guest room. The door stood ajar, giving view of a frescoed wall within. Malt, who had waxed jovial since her communion with the tankard, pushed the door open and went frankly into the half-light of a great chamber. She came to an abrupt halt on the threshold, with a fat hand quavering the symbol of the cross in the air. The women crowded the doorway and looked in over the cellaress's stout shoulders. In a gilded chair in the center of the room sat the figure of a man. His hands were clenched upon the lion-headed arms of the siege, and his chin bowed down upon his breast. He was clad in purple. There were rings upon his fingers, and his brow was bound with a band of gold. At his feet crouched a great wolfhound, motionless, dead. The women in the doorway stared on the scene in silence. The man in the chair might have been thought asleep save for a certain stark look, a bleak immobility that contradicted the possibility of life. Here they had stumbled on tragedy with a vengeance. The mute face of death lurked in the shadows, and the vast mystery of life seemed about them like a cold vapor. It was a sudden change from sunlight into shade. Igrain pushed past Malt and ventured close to the crouching hound. Bending down, she looked into the dead man's face. It was pinched and gray, but young, nonetheless, and bearing even in death a certain sensuous haughtiness and dissolute beauty. The man had been dark, with hair turbulent and lustrous. In his bosom glinted the silver pommel of a knife, and there were stains upon cloak and tessellated pavement. Clasped in one hand was a small cross of gold that looked as though it had been plucked from a chain or necklet, and held grip in the death agony. The wolfhound had been thrust through the body with a sword. Hum, said Malt with a sniff. 
Christian work here. And a comely fellow, too, more's the pity. Look at the rings on his fingers. I wonder whether I might take one for prayer money? It would buy candles. Igrain was still looking at the dead man with strange awe in her heart. Keep off, she said, thrusting off Malt. The man has been stabbed. Well, haven't I eyes too, hussy? Claudia came in, white and quavering, with her crucifix up. Poor wretch, said she. Can't we bury him? Bury him, cried Malt. Yes, sister. Thanks, no. It would spoil my dinner. Claudia gave a sudden scream and jumped back, holding her skirts up. There's blood on the floor. Holy mother, did the dog move? Move, quoth Malt, giving the brute a kick. What a mouse you are, Claudia. Are you sure the man's dead? Dead and cold, said Agrine, touching his cheek and drawing away with a shiver. Come away. The place makes my flesh creep. Shut the door, Malt. Let us leave him so. The women from Avangel had seen enough of the manor in the forest. Certainly it held nothing more perilous than a corpse, perched stiffly in a gilded chair. But the dead man seemed to exert a sinister influence upon the spirits of the company and to stifle any desire for a further sojourn into the place. Folk with murder fresh upon their hands might still be within the purlieu of the valley. The women thought of the glooms of the forest and of the strong walls of Andarida and discovered a very lively desire to be free of Andredswold and the threats of the unknown. They left the man sitting in his chair with the hound at his feet and went to gather food for the day's journey. Bread they took and meat and bound them in a sheet while Malt filled a flask with wine and bestowed it at her girdle. Igrine still had her bow, shafts, and hunting knife. Before sallying, they remembered the dead. It was Igrine's thought. They went and stood before the door of the great chamber, sang a hymn, and said a prayer. Then they left the place and held on into the forest. Nothing befell them on their way that morning. It was noon before they struck the road from Duravernum to Andorida, a straight and serious highway that went whitely amid wastes of scrub, thickets, and dark knolls of trees. The women were glad of its honest comfort, and blessed the Romans who had wrought the road of old. Later in the day they neared the sea again. Between masses of trees and over the slopes, they caught glimpses of the blue plain that touched the sky. From a little hill that gave broader view, they saw the white sails of ships that were plowing westward with a temperate wind. They took them for the galleys of the Saxons, and the thought hurried them on their way the more. Presently they came to a mild declivity with a broken toll house standing by the roadside, and two horsemen on the watch there as the distant galleys swept over the sea towards the west. The men belonged to the royal forces in Enderida. They were reticent in measure and in no optimistic mood. They told how the heathen had swept the coast, how their ships had ventured even to Vectus, to burn, slay, and martyr. The women learned that Andred's town was some ten miles distant. There was little likelihood, 
so the men said, of their getting within the walls that night, for the place was in dread of siege and was shut up like a rock after dusk. Igrain and the nuns elected, nonetheless, to hold upon their way. Despite their wariness, the women preferred to push on and gain ground, rather than to lag and lose courage. For all they knew, the Saxons might be as soon ashore, ready to raid and slay in their very path. They left the soldiers at the toll house and went downhill into a long valley. Possibly they had gone a mile or more when they heard the sound of galloping coming in their wake. On the slope of the hill they had left, they could see a distant wave of dust curling down the road like smoke. The two men from Andridstown were coming on at a gallop. They were very soon within bowshot, but gave no hint of halting. Thundering on, they drew level with the women, shouted as they went by, and held on fast, dust and spume flying. God's curse upon the cravens, said Malt the cellarus. Cravens they were in sense, yet the men had reason on their side and the women were left staring at the diminishing fringe of dust. There was much frankness in the phenomenon, a curt hint that carried emphasis and advised action. To the woods, it said. To the woods, good souls, and that quickly. The road ran through the flats at that place, with marsh and meadowland on either hand. Further westward, the wold thrust forth a finger from the north to touch the highway, Southward, scrub and grassland swept away to the sea. It was when looking southwards that the nuns from Avangel discovered the stark truth of the soldiers' warning. Against the skyline could be seen a number of jerking specks, moving fast over the open land and holding northwest as though to touch the road. They were the figures of men riding. The outjutting of woodland that rolled down to edge the highway was a quarter of a mile from where the women stood. A bleak line of roadway parted them from the mazy refuge of the wold. They started away at a run, Igrain and another novice dragging the nun Claudia between them. The display was neither Olympic nor graceful. It would have been ridiculous but for the stern need that inspired it. Igrain and her fellows made the best of the highway. In the west, the world seemed to stretch an arm to them like a mother. The heathen raiders were coming fast over the marshes. Igrain, dragging the panting Claudia by the hand, looked back and took measure of the chase. There were some score at the gallop, three furlongs or more away, with others on foot, holding on to stirrups, running and leaping like madmen. The girl caught their wild, burly look even at that distance. They were hollowing one to another, tossing axe and spear, making a race of it, like huntsmen at full pelt. Possibly there was sport in hounding a company of women, with the chance of spoil, and something more brutish to entice. Igrain and her flock were struggling on for very life. Their feet seemed weighted with the shackles of an impotent fear, while every yard of the white road appeared three to them as they ran. How they anguished and prayed for the shadows of the wood. A frail nun, winded and lagging, 
began to scream like a hare when the hounds are hard on her haunches. Another minute, and the trees seemed to stride down to them with green-bosomed kindness. A wild scramble through a shallow dike brought them to bracken and a tangled barrier about the hem of the wood. Then they were amid the sleek, solemn trunks of beechwood, scurrying up a shadowed aisle with the dull thudding of the nearing gallop in their ears. It was borne in upon Igrine's reason, as she ran, that the trees would barely save them from the purpose of pursuit. The women, limp, witless, dazed by danger, could hardly hold on fast enough to gain the deeper mazes of the place and the sanctuary the world could give. Unless the pursuit could be broken for a season, the whole company would fall to the net of the heathen, and only the virgin knew what might befall them in that solitary place. Sacrifice flashed into the girl's vision. A sudden ecstasy of courage, like hot flame. These abbey folk had been none too gentle with her. Nonetheless, she would essay to save them. She cast Claudia's hand aside and turned away abruptly from the rest. They wavered, looking at her as though for guidance, too flurried for sane measures. Igrine waved them on, with a certain pride in her that seemed to chant the triumph song of death. What will you do, girl? Are you mad? Go, was all she said. Perhaps you will pray for me as for Grazia the abbess. They will kill you. Better one than all. They wavered, unwilling to be wholly selfish despite their fear and the sounding of pursuit. There shone a fine light on the girl's face as they beheld her, tyrannical even in heroism. Her look awed them and made them ashamed. Yet they obeyed her, and like so many winging birds, they fled away into the green shadows. Igrine watched them a moment saw the gray flicker of their gowns go amid the trees, and then turned to front her fortune. Pursing her lips into a queer smile, she took post behind a tree bowl and waited with an arrow fitted to her string. She heard a slothering babble as the men reined in, with much shouting on the forest's margin. They were very near now. Even as she peered round her tree trunk, a figure on foot flashed into the grass ride and came on at the trot. The bow snapped, the arrow streaked the shadows, and hummed cheerily into the man's thigh. Igrine had not hunted for nothing. A second fellow edged into view and took the point in his shoulder. Igrine darted back some forty paces and waited for more. In this fashion, slipping from tree to tree and edging northwest. She held them for a furlong or more. The end came soon with an empty quiver. The woods seemed full of armed men. They were too speedy for her, too near to her for flight. She threw the empty quiver at her feet with the bow athwarted, put a hand in the breast of her habit and waited. It was not for long. A man ran out from behind a tree and came to a curt halt fronting her. He was young, burly with a great tangle of hair. 
and a yellow beard that bristled like a hound's collar. A naked sword was in his hand, a buckler strapped between his shoulders. He laughed when he saw the girl, the coarse laugh of a Teuton, and came some paces nearer to her, staring in her face. She was very rich and comely in a way foreign to the fellow's fancy. There was that in his eyes that said as much. He laughed again, with a guttural oath, and stretched out a hand to grip the girl's shoulder. An instant shimmer of steel and a grain had smitten him above the golden torque that ringed his throat. Life rushed out in a red fountain. He went back from her with a stagger, clutching at the place and cursing. As the blood ebbed, he dropped to his knees and thence fell slantwise against a tree. He had found death in that stroke. A hand closed on the girl's wrist. The knife that had been turned towards her own heart was smitten away and spurned to a distance. There were men all about her, ogrish folk, mustachioed, jerkened in skins, bare-armed, bare-legged. Igrine stood like a statue, impotent, frozen into a species of apathy. The bearded faces thronged her, gaped at her with a gross solemnity. She had no glance for them, but thought only of the man twitching in the death trance. The woods seemed full of gruff voices, of grotesque words mouthed through hair. Then the barbaric circle rippled and parted. A rugged-faced old man with white hair and beard came forward slowly. There was a tense silence over the throng as the old man stood and looked at the figure at his feet. There were shadows on the earl's face, and his hands shook, for the smitten man was his son. Out of silence grew clamor. Hands were raised, fingers pointed. A sword was poised tentatively above the girl's head. The woods seemed full of bearded and grotesque wrath, and the hollow aisles rang with the clash of sword on buckler. But age was not for sudden violence, though the blood of youth ebbed on the grass. The old man pointed to a tree, spoke briefly, quietly, and the rough warriors obeyed him. They stripped a grind, cast her clothes at her feet, and bound her to the trunk of the tree with their girdles. Then they took up the body of the dead man, and so departed into the forest. End of Book One, Chapter Two Recorded by Lori Nadeau Richardson www.loririchardsonvo.com